Okay, we're going to begin here with the Mishnah on the top of Pehalif. Mishnah says, Etzim, bone, the amount that you have to carry out in order to be chayav, what's considered to be significant, is Gedela so Tarvad, enough to make a spoon. Yehud Omer, Gedela Sot to make from it a lock or a key. It's not so clear exactly what he's referencing. The Gemara will also try to clarify that. Zichuchit, glass, how much glass is considered significant? Kedei ligorbo rosh hakarkar. Enough that you can scrape with it or separate with it the top of the spindle. Tzoror or Evan, tell you about a pebble or a stone. How big does that have to be? In order to throw it at a bird. Enough that you would scare away a bird when you threw such a stone. Throw in an animal that size too. Throw at a bird is not sufficient. You need something that's the size that you would scare an animal with that stone. Now the Gemara says, the Shi'ura de Rabbi Yehuda Nafish. Rabbi Yehuda's Shi'ur here is greater than that of the Chachamim. Sounds like he demands a higher standard. Don't we already establish, we established previously, the Shi'ur de Rabbanon Nafish. That the Rabbanon Shi'ur is bigger, and Rabbi Yehuda is the Chumrah, that he requires a smaller Shi'ur. When he said Chaf, that lock, he didn't mean the lock itself, but rather he means the teeth. Of the lock. Again, whether it means on the key, the teeth that are on the key, or in the locking mechanism, the teeth that match up on the inner side of the locking mechanism, one of those two, which are just the pieces that make up the teeth, not the actual key or the locking system itself. And that is obviously smaller than the requirement of the Chachamim. Now, Tan Rabbanan. Chafi Potechet Tehorim Kavan Bipotechet Meim. So these teeth of the key or locking system by themselves, when they're independent, they're tahor. Kavan b'potechet, if he attaches them, affixes them to the key or the locking mechanism, then they become tmeim, because now they become functional. Rashi claims that we're talking about here, shel etzem, made out of bone. That the Gemara is continuing along the stream of thought that it had before. We're talking about these teeth that are made out of bone. If they're simply independent pieces, they're useless as those independent pieces, and they are tehorim. Once they're affixed to the key or to the locking mechanism, then they become a part of a bigger system, and then they are mekabel tuma. Now, why are they mekabel tuma? According to Rashi, if you have a locking mechanism, it's attached to something else, and if it's mechubar to the karko or something else, then it shouldn't be mekabel tuma if the lock would not be mekabel tuma. So Rashi says that the lock has a beit kibul, as a receptacle to accept something like the key. So since it has a beit kibul, it's Mikabo Tumah. Tosafot rejects a lot of Rashi's assumptions here, and therefore suggests that the teeth that we're talking about here are not made out of bone, but teeth made out of metal. And the teeth, these pieces that are made out of metal, while they're not attached, are again what they call Gomei Matechet. They're just unformed pieces of metal that would not be Mikabo Tumah, and once they're affixed either to the locking mechanism or the key, then they become functional, and they are mekabel tumah. Tosvot says it's speaking about metal. Rashi says the continuation of the previous Gemara. We're talking about etzem, things that are made out of bone. V'shogal, afopi shechibran bedelet v'kavan v'masmerim teorim. The one of a gate or a doorway that, even if they affixed it to the door and put it in with metallic nails, it would all be tohor. Shokol mechuber lekarka rehu pekarka. Anything that's attached to the ground has a din like the ground. So some, again, explained before, we were talking about a key, now we're talking about the locking mechanism. So the key, which is independent, that can be mikabel tumah. The locking mechanism, which is attached, that does not mikabel tumah. Others, like Rashi explains, that we're always talking about a locking me- mechanism. Before, we were talking about a locking mechanism that was on a bureau or a drawer, something that's movable, something that wasn't necessarily affixed to the ground. That 
All right, padlock or something that was not fixed in place. Whereas here, you're talking about something that's attached to a door of the house, a gateway to the chatzer, something that's affixed to the ground, and therefore the locking mechanism is not mikabel tumah. Again, we'll see this a lot in the Gemara and Shabbat, which is the Gemara jumps between tumah and Shabbat, because both of the dinim of Shabbat and tumah require a assessment of what is considered a kli and what is not uh, consisting of a kli. And so therefore the Gemara many times will double look to Tumah for re- reference and it does for Shabbat. So you'll see this a lot that the Gemara jumps between Tumah and Shabbat. And so now the Gemara continues. Zechuchit kedele grorbo. Tana sechuchit. So the Gemara here uses a term sechuchit. Rashi says it's synonymous with zechuchit. It's just another way to express glass. Which is Rashi says, suchit is shesuchin, that you gaze through it. So that's what they call it, sechuchit. Or zechuchit is because zacha, because it's clear, it's uh, easy to see through. So the word zechuchit to sechuchit, the etymology comes from the function of glass, but they both mean the same thing. Today, it has to be a piece of glass that's sharp and that can be used to cut two threads at once which is the same as the requirement of the size that was mentioned in our Mishnah, which was to cut the end of the spindle, just a different way to express it. So now about the Tzor, or Evan, Kedez Rok Ba'of, Rebbe says you have to have a size for Be'ima, Amar Rabbi Yaakov, Amar Rabbi Yochran, V'hu, Shemiragashet Ba. That has to be enough that the animal would feel it, that it would make a difference. Otherwise, the throwing of the rock wouldn't matter. If you have a little pebble, it wouldn't matter. It has to be a size that would actually make a difference. So how do you have a size that makes a difference? A kamashu rope, what's the size of a rock or a pebble that would make a difference? Tanya, Rabbi Lozer, Ben Yaakov, Mishkala, Sarazuz. That's to weigh at least 10 zuz. And then that would make a difference when it lands to scare them away. I assume that it's the same, but Rabbi Lozer's basic premise is that you don't need a rock to scare away a bird. That birds can be scared away simply by raising your voice, making any noise. They're easily scared away. And therefore, there's no necessity for rocks to scare away birds, and that's why he uses the behemah as his premise or his threshold for what you have to scare away. This would be the type of rock that makes a difference when it lands, it makes noise. Right? Zonim al the Bay Midrasha. Zonim entered into the Bay Midrash. Amalu Rabutai says, Amanim Shobeta Kisei. The rocks for the bathroom. Shiran Bekamo. What is their size? So just as a preface to the rest of the Gemara here, the Gemara is going to continue on with this, is that they didn't have toilet paper in their day. And therefore, instead of toilet paper, they used stones to wipe themselves. So here the Gemara is going to discuss, when it comes to Shabbat, those stones which you take into the into the bathroom, are they considered to be prepared or not prepared? Remember, stones naturally are muksa. They have no purpose on Shabbat. They're not useful on Shabbat, so they're muksa. So what is considered not to be muksa and what number of rocks are you allowed to carry in order to use for the bathroom. So that's what we're in the discussion of the Gemara over here. So that's what Zonim came into the Beit Midrash and said, the stones of the Beit say, Shirun Bekama, what are the sizes that you're allowed to take in? So I'm below that the proper way is Kezayit, Keegos, and Kebeitza. That you have three size rocks that are used. And you have one the size of an olive, one the size of a nut, and then one the size of an egg. So they get progressively bigger. So it actually describes that's how they used to wipe themselves. It was They used to use a smaller rock and then larger rocks along the way. So he replied to them and retorted, I don't understand, were they going to take a scale in with him? How's he going to figure out that he has the right size rocks? Ella sanimnu vigamru maloayad. No, that you take in an amount that fills your hand. 
You're allowed to take a handful of rocks into the bathroom with you. Now, obviously, you can't carry these over a long distance, so either we're talking about within Dalad Amot of the bathroom itself, or we're talking about within the Chatser. If the bathroom is in the Chatser, the way you're allowed to carry this, you're allowed to take a handful of rocks with you. That's considered to be useful or rocks that have utility for you when you go into the bathroom. What we're going to do is allow you to carry the number of rocks you need, not in excess of that. You can't take more than you need. So that's the question here is what is what are the right amount of rocks that you're allowed to take in with you? So that we'll get to. The Gemara is going to discuss what, what how you do that. Tanya, another bright sefta that says if Yossi says like the Chachamim had responded that you have an olive size, a nut size, and an egg size, and Rav Shimon Rav Yossi or another Gersh I think is Rav Yoshmol, but Rav Yossi Omer Mishumaviv Meloayad handful of stones. Tanur Banan Gimo Avanim Mkuruzalot Mutar Lachnis the Beit Akisei. One can take in three stones that are Mkuruzalot. Mkuruzalot are stones that are appropriate for the bathroom, which means that they are. Pointed, but rounded at the point. So they're pointed, so they're good for wiping, but they're rounded, so they don't scrape the individual. Take three of those into the Beit HaKisei. What's the size of them? Rabbi Meir goes. The size of an egg goes. You can take three the size of a nut. Rabbi Yodomer, Kebetza. Three the size of a Kebetza. Amar Rafram Bar Papa, Amar Avchista, Kemachloketan, Kachmachloket Betrog. Just like they have a machloket here by the stones of the Beit HaKisei, they have a machloket by Etrog, which is what is the minimum size of an Etrog. And they have the same opinions over there. That Rabbi Meir says that the minimum size of an Etrog is an Egoz, a nut. And Rabbi Yudah says the minimum size of an Etrog is a Kebeitza. Where it says, I don't understand. Over there, by Etrog, it's explicit Mishnah. Over here, you're talking about a Braita. Why would you say that just like here is the machloket over there? You're not going to use a Braita to remember a Mishnah. A Mishnah is assumed to be known by everybody. A Braita is known by some. So if you wanted to connect between two things, you'd say, well, what's said in the Mishnah, you apply here. You don't say, well, it's applied in the Braita, we apply over there. So when it says, Ella, you have to reword that and it says, Everybody knows they have a Machloket like this by a Trog. So if you remember that Machloket by a Trog, you can remember now what they said by the Braita. Amra Yehuda. Avaloeta pais cannot take into the bathroom the pais. When I says my pais, what is this pais? Amar Rabbi Zera, Karshinei Bavlaito. These are clods of earth that are used in Bavel. Bavel, which has a lot of wet ground, doesn't have a lot of stones in their ground, and the clods of earth come off from the ground and it crumbles. So that's not what you should take in. It's bad for using, injurious, and therefore one should not take that into the bathroom with them. No, that's a general statement. Yeah, we're going to flip back and forth. The Gemara is going to flip back and forth in here between issues of Shabbat and issues of Chol. While they're on Shabbat already, they give some advice in general. Yeah, Rashi discusses how, they, first, they call, that he has to clean the piyatabat. He has to clear out the anal orifice first with the small rock, and then use the larger rock to clean around it. Amarova. Osor the mashmesh b'tzror b'shabbat k'derech shemeshme mashmesh b'chol. So the Gemara discusses. We saw this in Brachot as well. Uh, the Gemara discusses not only using rocks for wiping, but also the ability to stimulate, the ability to defecate. And here at tzror, they use some sort of pebble or rock uh, to, for, to stimulate as a suppository, in a sense, to stimulate going to the bathroom. So you can't use that same stone on Shabbat. The way you do it during the week. 
So what's he going to do? He's going to put himself in danger because he's not going to go to the bathroom. He's going to hold it in because of that. Kalachayad. Where it says, no, we're not saying that it's completely asur. You just can't do it the same way that you do it during the weekday. You have to do it with a shinui. You have to do it with some sort of change or some sort of distinction from the way that you normally do it during the week. Now Rashi says the reason that you have to do it differently over here is because it's we're afraid of what's called Hasharat Nimim. Afraid of you tearing away some of the hair. And so when you tear away the hair, which is a sore to be, or to pluck out, to take out two hairs on Shabbat, it's considering a sore. So the reason we don't allow you to do this the same way that you would do it during the week is because of that fear that you might cause several hairs on the body. So if you do a galachayad, then we say, okay, because then there's a shinoi, there's done in a way that's not normal. Tosafot raises the question of, isn't this davar sheinu mitkavein? Something that's unintentional. It's an unintentional result of being mashmesh. And if it's unintentional, and we're going to see later in the Gemara, we don't hold you culpable for it, because we hold like Rabbi Shimon, the Darashayinu Mitzkavein is mutar. So why are we worried about that over here? So Tosfot answers the end, that it has to be that it's a psikreshe, that this is something that happens no matter what. The Hasharat Nimim is something that is almost a derivative of doing this action, and it's not Darashayinu Mitzkavein anymore, because it's inevitable. It's going to happen no matter what. So now, Amar Abiyanai, to answer your question, how do we know whether these rocks are considered muhan for the Beit HaKisei? So, Abiyanai says, If there's a fixed place where the bathroom is, we're talking about a bathroom that has multiple uses, an outhouse of sorts, then you take in a full handful of rocks, because the assumption being, if you don't use them now, you'll use them later. So the rocks that you take in can be left around the bathroom, and then somebody else is coming in, or when you come later, you'll use them. So they're, they're all considered to be useful now, because whatever you bring in is going to be used. In love, if that's not the case, kehachreya, now this is Machloket Rashi and Tosafot, how to read this, kehachreya, meduchak tanashel b'samim. Here's what Tosafot had is that it's the amount, meduchak tanashel b'samim is a mortar for spices, a small mortar for spices. But Kehreya, Tosavot says, is like a small leg. The small foot that holds up a mortar of spices, that's the size that you're allowed to take in, in order to ensure that you're only taking that which is necessary. Whereas Rashi says Kehreya means like the middle ground. Something that sits between two things. And that means that it, it sits between a Gzayit and a Beitza. Right, size-wise. Above a olive size, below a egg size. Something that sits in the middle, we saw before, that's an egg goes. That's the size of a nut. That would be the kechreya, which would be the stone that you would use for a mortar, a small mortar of samim, of spices. Amrav Sheshit. Im eid, mutar. If it has some evidence on it, then it's mutar to take it. Evidence that it's a stone of the beta kisei. Now, evidence here seems to mean that it was used already. That someone had previously used it, and that's how you know that it's already prepared or used for the beta kisei. Where it says, wait a minute. There's ten things that brings a person to, Tachtonio will call them loosely hemorrhoids. Someone who eats leaves of reeds. Leaves of the grapevine. And the shoots of the grapevines. Meat that has grooves in it that has not been salted. So it's rougher meat. The spine of a fish. 
salted fish that was not cooked all the way. Someone who drinks the sediment of wine. Someone who wipes with lime or with clay. Or a stone that was used previously by someone else. Rashi says the Shekiniach Bo modifies all three of the last things. It's the stone, the lime, and the charasit, the clay, all three of these items that were previously used by someone else. Someone who does not sit down when they go to the bathroom. The brighter that we just brought seems to indicate that there's a problem of using a stone that was previously used by someone else. You're endangering yourself of getting or falling into this takhtoniot, whereas... Rav Sheshit is saying that that's the stone that you should pick to use on Shabbat. So how do we reconcile between that? Lo kasha, habalach, habiyavesh. Depends how long ago it was used. Meaning that if it's still moist, if it's been recently used, that's problematic. But yavesh, if it's already dried up, then that can be used again without any problem, but then there's evidence that it was used before. Bibaytema, kamitzadachad, kamibetzadim. Depends if it was used on both sides. Or only on one side. Again, if used on both sides, it would be problematic to use it. If it was used on one side, then you can use the other side without any problem. Depends who previously used it. If it's your own stone, then you don't have to worry about it. You can use it again. Whereas if it's someone else's stone, then you would not be used again. So Rav Sheshit is here is trying independently trying to indicate to us things that are not muksa or things that are prepared for Beit HaKisei things that already have evidence that they were stones designated to be used in the bathroom. That's really nice, but once it rains, it's going to erase any evidence of the fact that these were used previously. As long as there's some sort of marking left on them, there'll be some sort of line or mark on them that they were used. doesn't have to have clear evidence that they were used, but as long as there's something that looks like they were used, that's enough to make them not muksa and Ra'ui to take into the Beit HaKisei. Baimine Rabba Barav Shila Merav Chista. Ma'ul alotam acharav lagag. Simutar to take these stones up to the roof. If he's going to go and defecate on the roof, can he take the stones up to the roof? The Rashi says the question here relates to Tircha Yeteira. Tircha Yeteira is something on Shabbat that's going to come up loosely throughout the Masechta, which is that the general, the Chachamim, prefer that we don't do extra or unnecessary efforts on Shabbat. Even though technically effort or tircha on Shabbat is not a sur. Lecha is a sur, not tircha. You could run up and down your stairs all day and you can carry things that are heavy up and down all day. That's not necessarily a sur, but the Chachamim discouraged what's called tircha yeterita, unnecessary exertion. So here, is this considered to be unnecessary exertion to carry those stones up to the roof in order to go to the bathroom? That's the way Rashi phrases the question. Tosafot phrases the question based on the Gemara that's going to come after this, which is, shouldn't he have prepared this beforehand? One thing, if we're talking about a bathroom out in the field or outside, where even if he prepared them beforehand, someone else could have used them, doesn't mean necessarily that he's going to need them, they're too far out, he doesn't know where he's going to go to the bathroom. There are a lot of factors that he can't anticipate in preparing beforehand. But on, on his roof, that's something that's within his house. That's something where you could have a reasonable anticipation of using it, that he should have prepared them ahead of time. Toswat says the question is, why didn't he prepare them ahead of time? Asha says the question is, relates to, is this considered to be tircha yiterata? Amalei, gadol vodabriot, That when it comes to personal honor, something here where a person doesn't have to feel shame 
Someone doesn't have to be embarrassed. We allow you to be doch elotas. And elotas says, not literally elotas, elotas says, the elotas elotasur. Which is that you may not leave that which the Chachamim say. And that every din of the Chachamim or Zerah of the Chachamim also might involve an Isur Doraitan of not listening to the Chachamim, which is that if you don't listen to the Chachamim, you're in violation of the Din Doraitan of listening to the Chachamim. So here it says that even though the Chachamim said that these items are muksa and that one is not allowed to carry muksa unnecessarily on Shabbat, nevertheless, Gadol Kvoda Birot, that which should someone be, that person shouldn't feel shame, a person should take care of his needs, that we suspend this din of the Chachamim in order to protect the shame of an individual, protect the honor of the individual. So, so to over here, even though generally we wouldn't allow Tircha Yeterita, or in general we would say prepare this ahead of time, nevertheless, over here we suspend that for the needs of the individual and he could take up these stones, even though they might otherwise be considered muksa or otherwise considered so he said over this memra. Then Eitavei Ravina, the Meremar. Then Ravina posed this question based on what we just said. Person can pick up a toothpick, basically. It's a sharp piece of wood, a splinter of wood that he can pick up in order to use as a toothpick to clean out his teeth, to take out that which is stuck between his teeth. The only one you can take out is stuff that's inside of the animal's trough. Something that otherwise would go into the animal feed or be mixed in there. That you can take out because that's considered to be mukhan. That's something that's already been designated for utility. And therefore it's not mukso. So that you could take out and use for a toothpick. But to pick it off the ground, that you couldn't do. Because that doesn't have designation for utility as a toothpick. It's more likely going to be used as kindling for fire or other things, it's muksa, it's generally not within your purview. Whereas Rabbi Lezer believes that anything that's in your yard is considered useful to you, or something that you consider to be useful, and it's not muksa anymore. Now over here, the covet of briot is that if you have meat stuck between your teeth, and it's visible, that'd be something that you could be embarrassed about. And yet, the chachamim limit your ability to take a toothpick from the avus. They don't say just suspend all muksa and take whatever toothpick you want. So he wants to understand why... By the bathroom, we suspend the din chachamim of mukse, And here, by the toothpick, we don't suspend the din chachamim. When it says, Hachi ashto, how can you compare the cases? Over there, a person always eats in the same place. A person knows where he's going to eat on Shabbat. A person knows where his dining room is. He can have toothpicks prepared beforehand in his dining room. Over here, Person doesn't fix when he's going to, where and when he's going to go to the bathroom. Because Rashi says over here, it's interesting, Rashi says, in their day, they didn't have bathrooms in the house. But their bathrooms were out in the fields, and they, wherever they found somewhere, and even if they found somewhere, maybe someone else was there at the time, so they'd have to go somewhere else. And he says that they also lived in high density. Their houses were in high density, and people lived up in attics. And then they had to come down and then they had to find a place for a bathroom. They didn't have one in the house for sure. It's interesting, Rashi himself discussing that they didn't have bathrooms, when obviously they didn't have indoor plumbing in the time of Rashi either. But he distinguishes between what he seems to be his time, where they must have had designated outhouses for the houses, and there was less density between the houses. And therefore, people had some sort of private bathrooms. Rashi seems to indicate there were some sort of more designated bathrooms by his time that were private and that had... uh, were easily designated and useful so that they could set aside things. Whereas in their day, it was almost like a free-for-all. 
because they didn't have, the density of housing made it that nobody had a place or never, didn't have a chutzah, they had to go out into the fields. And even when you went into the fields, you were in competition with other people, find the bathroom. So even if you went to a place you thought was a bathroom, someone else could be there. So you'd never be able to prepare ahead of time for that. As opposed to your meals or your suda, there you should have been able to prepare ahead of time. Right, so that's what the, the basic idea was that within Dalaramot, in the Dalaramot that surrounded the Beit HaKiseh, those, those are the stones that you could pick up. That was what was in those areas. So either it's in a chatzer, which you're allowed to carry, then you wouldn't have the problem, or it's out in a field within the Dalaramot around the Beit HaKiseh, those stones were the stones that were considered designated for the Beit HaKiseh, because those were carryable to the Beit HaKiseh. We saw Rav Sheshit's qualification that not only that, it has to be something that was previously used in order to indicate that these are stones of the, uh, of the bathroom. Right, so that's the question. The question is that, but then we saw over here that we suspend muksa when it comes to covered abriyot. So then they wouldn't have that requirement, right? So that's the question. Rav Shesh, it seems to indicate that there has to be some sort of evidence. And then the question that was posed to Rav Chista seems to say that muksa is suspended in this case because of covered abriyot. Now, obviously, in these situations, it's better that you do prepare ahead of time. But if it's not prepared ahead of time, then we do suspend dine de Rabbonon in the face of covered abriyot. Right, so that's right. Rashi mentions that, that it can demand over here for someone to prepare it if someone else might use it. And then, what was the use of preparing it? Amar Also lifanot bishabbat. One cannot defecate out in a plowed field on Shabbat. It's after it's been plowed the first time, and it's ready to be planted, you can't go defecate there. My time. Because you're being unkind to the person who just plowed the field by now stomping it down. You're going in there walking across this newly plowed field, and you're basically flattening out, that's a problem during the weekday as well. That's not something unique to Shabbat. What's the problem here? We're worried about you pulling out growth from the ground. The rock that you pull out is going to have some sort of growth on it. And by pulling the rock out of the ground, you're going to detach that which is growing from the ground or separate it from its source of nourishment. If you have a rock that has like moss or some sort of growth that's on it, there's no problem to use that as toilet paper. But if you take it off of it, you rip it off on Shabbat, so the difference being whether it's it's whether you intend or don't intend for it. When you simply use the kaneach, you don't intend to remove the moss or whatever's growing on the rock from the rock itself. And therefore, it's not a problem. It's a davar she'enu mitkavein. Davar she'enu mitkavein, according to Rabbi Shimon, it's mutar. Whereas, if you intentionally go to remove that which is growing on the rock, then you're chayav chatat, because then you've separated something, you're being tolesh, you're removing something from its location of growth. Ella, dilma nokit mi'ilai v'shadalitatai. The problem is here, is that you might take a rock from one of the higher, when you have the furrows that are plowed by the plow, then you have a furrow and then a high, a furrow, a high, a furrow, a high. If you take your rock or whatever you're taking from the high point and then you place it down into the low point, what you basically have done is undone the plowing in that area. And since you've now taken something from the high point and filled in the low point in the field, you've actually done a malach on Shabbat, which is the problem of rabba. If you have a hole or some sort of depression, and you fill it in, babayit, if it's in the house, chayav mishum boneh. That's a problem of building on Shabbat. B'sadeh, in the field, chayav mishum choresh. That's a problem of plowing, because you're evening out the field, you're flattening out the field. 
That's a problem of working in the field on Shabbat. So that's what we're worried about in a newly plowed field of you going in there and using it as a bathroom. I would not worry about what? is going to discuss your question later on in the Masechta, in when you urinate in someone else's field. Are you watering their field? Umar is going to ask you a question in that context. They want to investigate this statement of Reish Lakish, that a stone that has growth on it, that you can use it to wipe, from Reish Lakish we can hear, This parpisa you can carry on Shabbat, not carry, but literally take it out of the ground on Shabbat. What this parpisa is, Rashi gives a long explanation, and it's amazing. It's an uh, unbelievable explanation, and that's why I want to read it inside with you. It says, Hari parpisa, Rashi says, Atzitz nakuv shizarobo. The first thing that Rashi says is it's a pot that has a hole in it, that's sitting on the ground. That's the first possibility. Ubechuvat agonim metzati. And then he brings what he found in the chuvat agonim. Shosim chatulot mikapot hatmarim. They take branches of the palm tree, which is basically the lulav, and they make baskets. They made the baskets out of the leaves of the lulav. They weave the baskets, right, like we can do. They fill them up with dirt and with dung. They do this 22 days or 15 days before Rosh Hashanah. So that's either two weeks in one day, three weeks in one day. They make one, each one of these for each child that is in the house. And they grow in it the Egyptian bean. Oh, kitniit. There's some sort of legume. We know that from the children in school. They do their kidney beans because they grow quickly. It's something that grows very quickly. And it grows quickly. That's what we know that happens here. Everyone takes their plant that was designated for them. And he winds it around his head seven times. Which is the equivalent of kaparot that Rashi is describing here. Afterwards they throw it into the river. So he's got the whole works in here. He's got uh, kaparot, tashlich, and then it's growing. It's very interesting what he's describing here, this type of minog that they had for the ketani mektanot. What was the purpose of ceremony? It's to remove the averot, in the sense that the plant represents the individual. The growth of the little plant was designated to the individual and therefore represents the individual. Erev Rosh Hashanah, right? They did an Erev Rosh Hashanah, it's Erev Yom Kippurim, makes sense. You know, do want to get kapara before you go to Yom Adin. So they did it on Erev Shashan and then they threw it into the river. Again, it seems to be a lot of the different minagim that we have. Some of these are pieces and parcels of those minagim that are all blended together into one uh, ceremony here. So this parpisa sitting on the ground. So the parpisa is not necessarily growing from the ground because it has its own dirt and dung in it. But in some senses it draws nutrition from the ground. It has holes in it, or even if it's a, even if it's a basket, right, that it's a, it would have some sort of ability for it to gain nutrition from the ground. This is what Reish Lokish said before, if I pick up a rock that has a moss on it, that's not a problem. The problem is only if I rip the uh, greenery or I rip what's growing on the rock off the rock. That's the problem. When I lift up the rock itself, that's not problematic. That's not considered to detaching it from the ground. 
that's the case, so too here, by this pot that has a hole in it, or this basket, when I detach it from the ground, that shouldn't be problematic. Mati floor of Kahano. So Rav Kahano says, wait a minute. Says, wait a minute, that's not necessarily true. Over here, it's Litzorech. Litzorech means that because of the bathroom issue again, which is covered a briot. So for covered a briot, maybe the Rabbanan suspended the Isur to remove these things or to pick them up. Over here, when you just want to pick up this parpisa, that doesn't have any necessity on Shabbat. Maybe over there it should be problematic. So again, he invokes the rule that we said before, which is Gadol Gadol Rabirot Shadducha Lotaseshib Torah. So that's something that maybe suspends the Din Chachamim here of lifting this up. So then he says, Amra Bayit, for Pisa, Hova Atli Adan, since we're speaking on the topic, let me say something about it. Hayamurach Agabe Karka. It was on the ground. And then he lifts it up onto stilts. Then he's chayav for shum tolish. Hayimunach gabi yeteidot. If he put it was up on stilts, then he called gabi karkar chayav mishum noteyah. So this machlok here in the Rishonim, Rashi and Tosafot both take the same approach here. And when we say chayav over here, generally when the Gemara uses the term chayav, it means chayav midoraito. It's a problem midoraito. And Rashi and Tosafot both say that can't be the case here. We're not talking about an isodoraito. We just saw that before. Because before it said that you're allowed to pick this up for the bathroom, for use for the bathroom, which means that we're suspending a dinder abonon for you to allow you to use it for wiping yourself. That's only true if it's a dinder abonon. Nobody says that you can suspend a dindar raita for kavod abriot. That doesn't apply at all. So we must be talking about a dinder abonon. So the chayav over here cannot be chayav midar raita. has to be chayav midar abonon. And that's what it means here. That midar raita, when you take the pot off the ground, and you put it up on stilts. Or you take it on the stilts and put it back down onto the ground. Midoraita, you've done nothing. The same way that this plant draws nutrition from the ground when it's sitting on the ground itself, the Gemara believes that it draws nutrition from the air space, from the air around it. And that would be enough. And therefore, Midoraita, you've done nothing. When you've taken it off the ground or put it back on the ground, you've done nothing. Midorabanan, they call that tolesh. That's as if you've uprooted something. And you know, tell you, it's if you planted something. But it's all in Easter to Rabbanan, because it looks like you're uprooting or planting. But it's not really that you're uprooting or planting Midoraita. That's the way Rashi and Tosafot explain it. The Rambam disagrees. And the Rambam says, if you pick something off the ground and put it up on stilts, it's Tolesh Midoraita. It was before it had attachment to sustenance from the ground itself, because of the hole in the pot. Now you put it up on stilts, it can't sustain itself. Even though it may draw nutrition, it's not attached to the ground anymore. It can't draw nutrition from the ground. That's considered to be Tolesh. And your chayav midoraita, according to the Rambam. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, asur lekaneach becheres b'shabbat. One may not wipe themselves with pottery or shards of pottery on Shabbat. My taima. What's the reason? Ilaim mishum sakana because it's dangerous. It's sharp. It could cause damage. It's injurious. Afilu b'chol nami. That should be true on a weekday. Forget about Shabbat. On a weekday, it should be problematic. Ela mishum kshafim. Well, you're worried about that. There's sorcery, witchcraft. That was placed on the shards of pottery. The same problem should exist on a weekday. That because your problem again of removing it's sharp, and it might tear away hairs from the body, which would be a problem on Shabbat of pulling out hairs. So when it says again, that's something that's unintentional. Rabbi Yochanan said something, a great person said something, we can't just leave it as unexplained. Let me try to explain this. Lomi asur. Of course, using cheresan a weekday is asur. Although Shabbat, Shapir Dami. 
So I would have thought, when it came to Shabbat, now I have an option. I have an option to use these shards of pottery, which have a direct clear on them. They're not muksa. So I could use these shards of pottery that are not muksa, or I could pick up stones that are muksa. So now I have to make a choice on Shabbat. Should I opt for the stones that are muksa, or opt for the shards that are not muksa? So he says, Kamash Mulan, that we tell you still use the muksa stones, because we don't want you using the shards of pottery that could endanger you, either because of shafim, because of all the other reasons that, or sakana, the dangers that are involved. Rava said, the problem here is not because of what Rav Natan Baroshi explained, but rather because I'm worried about him tearing away hairs. Then you have a stira in Rabbi Yochanan. If he says the reason that you can't use cheres on Shabbat is because it tears away the hairs, that means that something's unintentional, Rabbi Yochanan says it's a sur on Shabbat. It means he's not passing like Rabbi Shimon. Vahama Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan said, Aloha kistam mishnah. The Aloha is like a stam mishnah, but none. And we have a mishnah in Nazir that says, Nazir chufeif, umifas pes. A Nazir can, chufeif is machlik saro, he can paste down his hair, or he can part his hair. But he may not velocerate, he may not comb his hair, because in combing his hair, it's a psikresha that he's going to pull hairs out of his head. If that's the case, why is it that the chofeif and mifaspes are allowed, and sarek is not allowed, because it's a davar, sheinu mitkavein. So you see, Rabbi Yochanan subscribes to Rabbi Shimon's principle, davar sheinu mitkavein is mutar. So if he thinks davar sheinu mitkavein is mutar, then why over here are you saying that we're worried about hasharat nimim, we're worried about the tearing wear of the hairs when he wipes himself. Clear that the explanation here of Rabbi Yochanan's statement is like Rabbi Natan Baroshia, not like the way Rabbi explained it over here. This Mishnah becomes a pivotal point. I'm just going to point it out here, but this becomes a pivotal point in the understanding of Davrashenu Mitkavein and Psik Reshe. says something will automatically happen. Even when it's unintentional, if it's inevitable that this will happen, then we say it's a sword, even according to Rabbi Shimo. Whereas, if it's Davrashenu Mitkavein, it's something that something's unintentional, it's Mutar on Shabbat. How do you determine that threshold between something that's unintentional and something that is inevitable? Now, something inevitable, you say to me, or oh, something that has to happen. Well, what is the percentage or the likelihood that it has to happen? I mean, that how likely is it that it will happen? So this discussion by Nazir comes up as one of the pivot points in understanding that. When I say to you that it's Darvashen Mitzkavein, as long as there's a possibility of it not happening, what's that mean? It is a possibility. So does that have to be a likely possibility that it doesn't happen? Or can it even be a far-fetched possibility that it doesn't happen and that's enough? So this, and some of the chuvot that are brought, the Nazir plays in a role here in combing the hair. It says combing hair on Shabbat. Or combing hair of the Nazir. Over there, when he combs the hair, overwhelming likelihood is that a hair will detach when one does that. And since that's the overwhelming likelihood that will happen, therefore it's asur because it's considered to be psikreshit. So there, the Rishonim tried to prove from that that... When we say that it has to be likely, it has to be a plausible likelihood. Something that is within the realm of possibility. Not something that is so far-fetched, so far out in the probabilities that, oh yeah, look, maybe one time out of a thousand it won't come out. That's not enough. It has to be something that's really plausible, that you could think ahead of time and say that this is a plausible outcome over here. Many of those use this as the determination of what's considered to be plausible. That you can't use something that's impossible or something that's so far-fetched. 
you know, they do discuss, and this is in the discussion I sent out these Makorot also, whether what happens if it's for you, it might be impossible, but for someone else it is possible. So that maybe in your circumstance, it would be impossible. But if someone else did it, they might have that. If an expert did it, he could come up with a possibility where the probability wouldn't work. Is that enough to free you of the problem of secretion or not? So again, all of these factor into determining where you have that threshold between Dovershain and Mitkavein and Psikreshe, but this issue of the Nazir is one of those, one of those factors here. Right. Are defined, correct. That's what the Rishonim are grappling with, is where is that threshold? Some of them are trying to set an objective standard, some of them say no, anything that's plausible is enough. Anything that's possible, can it happen? You're fine. Which is that even if it's 99%, you're still okay because it's that 1%. Others say, no, it's got to be something that's... Right, that's something that has to be uh, possible, practical, that's something that you could consider as a possible outcome over here. I don't know if that's 20%, 40%, has to be something that's a higher percentage. And they're grappling with this because the Gemara doesn't necessarily define it. So they're trying to use the cases like this to define that threshold. And now the Gemara says, Mike Shofim, what is this problem of sorcery, witchcraft that we're worried about with the Klicheres? They were traveling on a boat. This matron, this woman asked to, you know, a matron in general was an important woman, a woman of stature within their society. So she wanted, so she usually got rights like men in terms of her standing within society. So therefore she asked to go and travel with them in the boat. They said, no, you can't travel with us. She mumbled or murmured some words. She froze the boat in place. They responded, and then they freed the boat. So Rashi says here, they did it through the kosher way to do this. They used Hashem's name somehow to do this. As the Rashi says here, Rashi and Chulin seems to reject this understanding of what they did. Whatever, they undid the witchcraft, sorcery, whatever it was. So Amra Loho she says, what can I do to you? Because you don't do any of the things that sorcery or witchcraft takes effect on. What are those? You don't wipe yourselves with shards of pottery. You don't kill your lice on your clothing itself. You don't smush it on your clothing. And you don't take vegetables to eat out of the bundles that are put by the gardeners. You first unbundle them and then take the vegetation. So I don't have any insight into this, but it's clear from this. And Rashi points out that all of these issues are things that witchcraft took effect on. And since you don't do any of these things or you're makpid to make sure that this doesn't happen, I don't have the ability to place my spells upon you. All right, so we'll stop over here.